Have you had a good weekend? Anyone made it to the air show? Good times. I was talking to Mike this morning. We just went and parked up on the hill behind uh, Jess's place. And Mike said, oh, you booked the Scottish Grandstand. I was like, I didn't know I had a name, but I'm in. Uh, but just magnificent. Uh, every funeral and wedding that I've done this weekend had a, had a special flyover, pre, pre-organized, just, just like that. Thank you, Nigel. I'm going to need that this morning. So um, there's a lot going on. Which reminds me that there was a lot going on on Resurrection Sunday. There's a lot going on in that weekend. There was a whole heap of things. You know, uh, there was there was Passover going on in the city. There was Roman occupation. There was all sorts of different things. There was rejoicing, mourning. Depending on what part of the city you'd have gone to, different people were in different spaces. And sometimes it's easy to get caught up in the 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 multitude of what's happening that you miss the magnitude of the important thing. And so this morning, it's my pleasure to draw your attention to the risen Christ. And uh, I, just, I just need you to know this morning that it's Resurrection Sunday, and so I need a little bit of life in here this morning. We got, <laughs> have we got some Christians who have got something to be happy about today? Good. Excellent. I'm glad. I'm glad. Uh, I want to do something kind of different this morning in the sense that it's Resurrection Sunday... And I'm not going to talk about the resurrection itself. I'm going to show you how the resurrection has been something that God has planned from the beginning. And we're going to take communion a little bit later today, uh, this morning. And if you're like me, maybe you, you know, I was brought up that you don't take communion on Resurrection Sunday. Like, that's a Good Friday thing. You don't do it on Resurrection Sunday because that's the death part. You do the celebration. But I'm going to show you this morning exactly why we should Gather around the Lord's table this morning. You got your Bibles. You turn with me to the book of 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 9. We're going to read a story about David uh, and Jonathan and Mephibosheth. We're going to have lots of fun with that. I'm, you're going to have more fun laughing at me than I'm going to have trying to say it. Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 9. We're going to read the whole chapter this morning. I'm reading from the NLT. If you don't have it, it will be on the screen behind you, but there's something about handling a Bible that just excites me, so we're going to do that. Should have put a bookmark in. All right. We're going to read it right through, and then we're going to, we're going to visit it. We're going to look at some things. Okay, here we go. Verse 1. One day David asked, who is now the king, is anyone in Saul's family still alive? Anyone to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? And he summoned a man named Ziba, who had been one of Saul's servants. Are you Ziba? The king asked. Yes, I am, Ziba replied. And the king then asked him, is anyone still alive from Saul's family? If so, I want to show God's kindness to them. And Ziba replied, yes, one of Jonathan's sons is still alive. He's crippled in both feet. Where is he? The king asks. In Lodabar, Zeba told him. Great names for your budgie all the way through this, if you're interested. At the house of Micaiah, son of, son of Emil. So David sent for him and brought him from Micaiah's home. His name was Mephibosheth, you would think, after all these years. He was Jonathan's son and Saul's grandson. When he came to David, he bowed low to the ground in deep respect And David said, Greetings, Mephibosheth. 
And Mephibosheth, why would they make you do it twice? Mephibosheth <laughs> replied, I am your servant. Do not be afraid, David said. I intend to show kindness to you because of my promise to your father, Jonathan. I will give you all the property that once belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will eat here with me at the king's table. Mephibosheth bowed respectfully and claimed, who is your servant that you should show such kindness to a dead dog like me? Mephibosheth had some self-confidence issues, right? Then the king summoned Saul's servant Ziba and said, I have given your master's grandson everything that belongs to Saul and his family. You and your sons and servants are to farm the land for him to produce food for your master's household. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, will eat here at my table. Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. That's a pretty good crew of people to work your farm. Zeba replied, yes, my lord, the king, and I am your servant, and I will do all that you have commanded. And from that time on, Mephibosheth ate regularly at David's table. That's the third time we've heard that. It's like the author really wants us to know something. Like one of the king's own sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah. From there on, all members of Zeba's household were Mephibosheth's servants. And Mephibosheth, who was crippled in both feet, lived in Jerusalem and ate regularly at the king's table. That's four times. I want to talk to you this morning from the thought the table is set. The table is set. See, if we want to draw out the greatest meaning of the scripture, it's helpful to understand some history. Uh, let me do some quick history for those of you in the room who might, might not be familiar with things leading up to this. I promise not to bore you. It'll be exciting history. We won't do the whole thing. Uh, so there's this guy called Saul, right? We heard about him. Uh, and he was the king of Israel. But he did some things that he shouldn't have, and he lost his favor with God, and he was told that he was going to lose his position, that someone not from his family line would take his place as king. So then you've got this guy, Jonathan, right? So Jonathan is the son of Saul, which means legally he's the heir to the throne, right? Legally he's the heir to the throne, but he's also David's best friend, and then David gets anointed by Samuel, the prophet, as the next king of Israel. You're going to be the next king. And so here's Jonathan, the son of Saul, who, like, that's his dad. He's the heir. His best friend's just been anointed for his future job. But Jonathan chooses to honor his friendship with David over his rightful position, his birthright. That's going to be important later. And so... They remain friends, and then we read at the end of the book of 1 Samuel that Saul and Jonathan both die in a battle against the Philistines on the same day. That's not a good day when you lose you and your next heir to the throne, and, and so that's it's not exciting, right? I don't feel like I need to really labor on that. We get it. But I want to, well, the bit that I want to labor on is what would happen next? I want you to take your mind back to, uh, to biblical times when you had kingdoms and, and, and rulers and armies and war and conquests and all those sorts of things. And I want you to think what happens after an enemy party kills the king of a neighboring country. They don't just go, hey, that's a victory. Let's go home and call it a day. They go, the king is dead. We should take that kingdom now. We should, we should like march in there. We should do this. And so, again, another story for another day. That doesn't end up happening. David ends up sitting on the throne. 
But there's this kind of fear, right? When the king dies, there's the sense that like all your trust has been rallied behind that person. And when the king dies, suddenly you're not really sure if you can face another day. My daughter and I, my oldest daughter, Taya, we've been reading the Chronicles of Narnia. And just through coincidence, we got to the story over the weekend where, where Aslan gives his life in exchange for Edmund. C.S. Lewis writes this beautiful story to capture the power, the person of Jesus in the resurrection in children's story form. And we're reading it. And of course, the king is dead. How will we, how will we now cope? Like all of our hope was in that. And so, so you've got this whole thing going on. And, and so people, so here's what a king would want to do, right? When you, when you kill the king, you want to take his throne. You also want to kill off any legitimate challenge to that throne, right? So there's this guy, Mephibosheth, right? If, if, if Saul's dead, Jonathan's dead, next in line for the throne, Mephibosheth. Or at least certainly coming close. And we read this story about him. There's just a brief passage about him in 2 Samuel chapter 4, if we go back a few chapters. Don't worry about turning there. We'll bring it up here. It says, Saul's son Jonathan had a son named Mephibosheth who was crippled as a child. He was five years old when the report came in from Jezreel that Saul and Jonathan had been killed in battle. And when the child's nurse heard the news, she picked him up and fled because you would, right? Because he's next. We have to go. But as she hurried away, she dropped him and he became crippled. This is not a fun story. This is not an exciting moment for Mephibosheth. His life goes from from bad to worse very, very quickly. And they're running because the king is likely to make claim to the throne. And so Mephibosheth grows up. He lives in this secret place. He thinks he's doing all right. David's taken the throne, which isn't kind of what they thought would happen, but is what God had, had knew would happen and had a plan for. And so David the same, right? David, in his position as a king, he should want the same thing. But we've read in 2 Samuel chapter 9 that his mindset is different. And he says, is there anyone I can show kindness from the line of Saul for Jonathan's sake? You gotta understand how countercultural that is this morning. You need to like really like a king doesn't do that. And Mephibosheth would have known that. So I want you to imagine Mephibosheth, who's living in Lodabar at this stage, the king's army comes marching into town. Lodabar wasn't an overly populated place, uh, didn't have a great reputation. We're gonna talk about it a little bit later. But so he's here, and the king's army comes in and goes, Hey, King David wants to see you. And you go, well, there it is. Made my time. Had some, you know, like managed to hide for a while. This is probably the end. Because you've got to understand, the descendants of predecessor kings did not get invited to dinner parties. They got invited to public executions. Right? David wants to see you. (laughs) You, you should get ahead of the situation, right? No, it's not going to be fun. And, and so they bring Mephibosheth to David. And it says that he falls down in front of him. He worships him, basically, and says, you know, he bowed low in deep respect. But David says, greetings. He says, I'm your servant. Don't be afraid, David said. I intend to show you kindness. Because of my promise to your father, Jonathan, 
I will give you all the property that once belonged to your grandfather Saul, and will eat, and you will eat here with me at the king's table. I'll give you back what was taken for you from you, and I'll give you back something that you've never had before. I'll show you mercy, and I'll show you grace. It says this four times, you will eat at my table, or Mephibosheth ate at the Lord's table. So let's pick that up for a minute. You, you've heard us talk about the Lord's table, if you've been coming on Sunday before. It's commonly called the Lord's table. Maybe you've never been to church, but you've still heard the term the Lord's table, the Eucharist, communion, whatever it may be for you. But this word table and the image of a table has roots deep, 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 deep back in history, way before communion. See, the table in the Bible is always a picture of reconciliation. The Hebrew word for table is this word shulkan, shulkan, which means table, but was also colloquially used to mean reconciliation. Sometimes it was a, it was a term colloquially given to a lambskin, because if you didn't have a table, now, again, you go to a lot of Eastern cultures, they eat on mats, right? So they'd lay out a lambskin and they would eat on a table. You might be able to see the significance of that. And so this, this word has always been, when you see a table in the Bible, you're always reminded that there's this picture of reconciliation. And what we, when we start to look at it, there's this process, which is still followed today uh, in, in many places in the Middle East. It's called sulha, and it comes from this word. It's, a, it's an Aramaic word, but it comes from the Hebrew word for shulkan, for table. Sulha is a Middle Eastern practice, and what it involves, it's, it's like restorative justice. It involves sorting out disputes and grievances, but instead of through the, the public court system, it's sorted at a table over a meal. See, there's something about sitting at a table and eating with someone that causes you to reconcile. That causes you, it's really hard to sit at a table and eat a meal with someone you're not reconciled with. You ever had one of those dinners in your family? Right? Like you've gone all day without speaking to each other, but once you're at the table, it's like, well, I guess I have to say something. Something about sitting at the table, sitting across from one another, eating food that draws us out of ourselves and causes us to confront the uncomfortable. And this picture of a table. This picture of a meal, this picture of breaking bread together was a deeply historical thing from basically the foundation of the Jewish people. So when we come to the table of the Lord, we don't see just a new reality. We see a continuation of a promise and a continuation of something symbolic that God's been talking about for a long, long time. And David says to Mephibosheth, you will always eat at my table. See, the purpose of the table, the purpose of the sulha is to try and end the cycle of revenge and the cycle of suffering and the cycle of death. See, because you, you're living in an eye for an eye culture and what happens in an eye for an eye culture is you always take an eye and a tooth. And so someone in your family gets hurt and then in response of someone getting wounded, you kill someone in their family. In response of someone being killed in your family, you kill two members of their family. And on and on it goes. And eventually someone goes, can we sit down at the table and bring this to an end? Shulkan means table. It's also understood as reconciliation. And we still have parts of this in our colloquial language today. When we talk about bringing something to the table, or when we talk about nothing's off the table, 
You ever had that conversation? Look, nothing's off the table, which means you can talk about anything you want. When we table a proposal, it means to initiate something. Except in America where it means to postpone. Which is like the complete opposite thing. Which maybe that's a challenge to us. What's your table for? And as I mentioned, sometimes a lambskin was called a shokan because it was used as an eating mat. And so David, when he invites Mephibosheth to the table of reconciliation, he invites the person he should be eager to kill, right? Like David should want to kill this boy with everything in his being. But instead he invites him to sit at the table when he could have tried to make a claim to the throne. Funny, isn't it? Incidentally, this same man would write Psalm 23. And in Psalm 23, he would say the words, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. And we often like to think of that table as a place where I can gloat, where I can sit and feast while my enemies suffer. But David understood that if the Lord prepares a table in the presence of your enemies, it's to invite them to take a seat. Because the table is symbolic of reconciliation. And this is where where things start to get really interesting for me. I hope they get interesting for you as well. Uh, Mephibosheth comes from a Lodabar. Sounds like something out of Star Wars. I feel like that's where, you know, it's not important. I'm also, I'm I'm versed in two types of scripture, holy scripture and Star Wars scripture. And one definitely takes precedent over the other, but I can wax lyrical about both for quite some time. Uh, So, Lodabar. Let's talk about that. Uh, Lodabar, the name literally means no pasture. No pasture. So this is like, Lodabar is known as a place where things don't grow. Nobody lives there because nothing grows there. And you go, well, okay, what's the, what's the significance of that? Well, let me give you a clue. Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 15. Let's take a look at that. It says this. It says, he will give you lush pasture land for your livestock. This was a promise that God made to his people much further back. He will give you pasture for your livestock and you yourselves will have all you need to eat, right? See, if there's no pasture, there's no cattle, there's no lambs, there's no, there's no food. If there's no food, there's, you're hungry, right? So especially in Jewish culture, they could only eat grass-fed animals with split like there was a whole like kosher food thing, right? If it wasn't strictly grass-fed, you couldn't eat it. But here's what else that means. See, I want you to really get this image. Mephibosheth is crippled. He's unclean, and he's in the place of no pasture. No pasture means no food. No food means no table. No table means no reconciliation. No sheep means no sacrifice for his people, right? Like the Day of Atonement kind of required some things. That, and so he's sitting in this place of, that is symbolic of no food, no sacrifice, no table, no reconciliation because there is no pasture. And David invites Mephibosheth from the place of no pasture to a place where he will always have a seat and a full stomach. You got to like this I, this is a great exchange. This is a great deal more than Mephibosheth ever thought he deserved. Here's the other thing. Because Mephibosheth is crippled, he's actually forbidden from sitting at the king's table. See, because there was this extension, if the unclean weren't allowed in the temple, then the king was supposedly like God's, one of God's holy men, and so the unclean shouldn't be allowed. And so like everything about this 
is grace and mercy personified. Because this, this boy is literally disqualified. But when he sits at the king's table, his feet are hidden under the reconciliation of the king. Which raises the question, do we know anybody else that used to eat with people who don't deserve it? This is a story Jesus tells, and he tells it to illustrate what the kingdom of God's like, and he talks about this story about a son who asks his father for an inheritance before he dies. Completely disrespects his father says, Can I, yeah. and, and so he takes off and it says he squanders it. He squanders what he has on, on, on all sorts of just debauchery and, and selfishness and worldly gain. And he ends up with nothing. And he says, if I go back to my father's house, at least maybe I can be a servant. Remember what Mephibosheth does? He bows down and says, let me be your servant. Like, but he gets there and it says, while he was a long way off, the father ran to him put a garment around his shoulders, the signet ring on his finger, and said, kill the fatted calf. Let's eat. Let's sit at the table because this son of mine who was lost is now found. There's this other guy called Zacchaeus that nobody likes because he's a tax collector. And Jesus is walking through and he looks up and he sees him in the tree. And he says, you, come down because I have to stay and eat at your place today. Now, you didn't enter someone's house without eating a meal. He goes, I'm coming and I'm going to sit at your table and we're going to eat together. And everybody goes, what? And it says he spends the afternoon at Zacchaeus' house. And because of this exchange, because of this meal, you know, it's, there's this powerful exchange. There's this other miracle where Jesus feeds 5,000 people. Okay, good. No, I'm just making sure. It's all right. I'm just assume you're processing. I'm like, it's all right. I don't need. I don't need it for my ego. I just need to know you're alive. I just. I don't want to waste your time. That's all. Um, five thousand people with five loaves and two fish. Like that's not a lot of food for a thousand people. Like even the little squares we have at communion wouldn't go that far. But I want to tell you, there's two miracles that take place here. There's the feeding of the five thousand people. But then there's the fact that five thousand people sat down to eat together. Because those crowds were made up of Pharisees and believers and unbelievers and heathens. Like, like Jesus just drew masses of people together. And one of the things that identified those people is by who they refused to eat with. Right? Like this is, part, this is a massive part of Jesus' ministry. Why are you eating with him? Why are you eating with him? Jesus performs a miracle where he feeds them all. But more importantly than that, Jesus performs a miracle where people of diverse culture and, diver, and all diverse ethnicity and diverse gender and diverse beliefs all sit down and eat a meal of reconciliation together that he provided. <sighs> I like Jesus because he likes food. Jesus was a Baptist. <laughs> and so there's this other story, Matthew chapter 9. I'll read this one word for word. It says this. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man named Matthew. Jesus really liked eating with tax collectors. He's sitting at his collector's booth, and he says, follow me and be my disciple. So Matthew got up, and he followed him. Later, Matthew invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as his dinner guests, along with many other tax collectors and other, I love this word, disreputable sinners. 
But when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his other disciples, why does your teacher eat with scum? See, see, this is how important it was not to eat with other cultures. So again, when Jesus gets 5,000 people to sit down and eat, you've got to understand how significant that is. And Jesus says when he heard this, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. So Jesus has this habit of eating with people who don't deserve to eat with him, which was an idea and a reality that God established from the beginning of time when we see David eating with Mephibosheth, someone who didn't deserve to eat with him. There's another meal that Jesus talks about in Revelation chapter 3. You might have heard the scripture before. This is what it says. It says, did I give you that one? Revelation 3, 20? Yep. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. We've heard that. But watch what it says. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in. And what will we do? We'll eat. I'll eat with that person and they will eat with me. Because the invitation this morning to the Lord's table is that God has a seat for you. Whether you deserve it, whether you've earned it, whether you're clean or unclean, whether other people think you deserve a seat at the table. Jesus says, I knock. And the only requirement is that you hear my voice and open the door. The only requirement is that the risen king be let in. That's it. He says, and I will eat with you and you will eat with me. See, if we go back to that story in 2 Samuel chapter 9, we have to remember the reason that Mephibosheth got to eat at the table. Mephibosheth didn't deserve to eat at the table. He was unclean to eat at the table. But at the very beginning, David says to Ziba, is there anyone I can show kindness to for Jonathan's sake? See, Mephibosheth is at the table because of Jonathan, not because of Mephibosheth. He didn't even know him. Certainly not because of Saul. He's at the table because of Jonathan. Let me put it to you this way and bring these two stories together. Mephibosheth sits at the table because the rightful king gave up his throne for someone else. Because the one who deserved to rule over us all said, I will come down. The one who could have sat on the throne, who could have challenged it and said, you know what? That's mine. Said, I will come down and I will redeem you. And I will let you sit at my table. I will let you approach. And so the Bible says that as he is, so are we in this world. The Bible says we are what? Seated with Christ in heavenly places. Jesus Resurrection redeems us from the place of no pasture, redeems us from the place of no reconciliation, redeems us from the place of hopelessness, redeems us from the place of death and sin and hell and seats us at his table. And Jesus' last act on earth before he died was to instigate a meal that we can all partake in. The sick, the unclean, the undeserving. And he tells us to do it in remembrance of him, the rightful king who gave up his throne 
for his friends. You know, the Jewish code of law, which is like the first basic commentary of how to interpret the Torah. You know what it's called in Hebrew? The Shulchan Arach. It means the set table. <laughs> the set table. The table is set this morning. I wonder if the elders could come and, and bring it to a more central place. Jess, are you here? Or are you with Lucky somewhere? Okay, all good. It's fine. This morning, I, I want you to know this, whether you've been in church for 50 years or five minutes. The table is set, and the risen king has a place for you this morning. The meal is the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe this morning you feel like you've been in Lodabar, the place of no reconciliation, place of no pasture. Maybe you've been looking for some form of restoration everywhere else, some form of forgiveness, some form of reckoning everywhere you can imagine. I want to tell you this morning, you will find it at the king's table. I'm going to pray. And instead of distributing the elements this morning, I thought it would be appropriate for those of you who want to, when you're ready, that you might approach the table and and take what you need this morning. Uh, This table is for all those who want to open the door to Jesus. It might be your first time this morning You don't have to be in church for three months. You don't have to have said a particular ritual. You don't have to have had a particular approval from anybody. You have an invitation from the king. If you would like to come and eat and drink this morning, then you're welcome. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, we thank you death, your sacrifice, but we thank you for your resurrection, that you are alive, that you have triumphed over death because you are without sin, and death cannot hold that which is perfect, and Jesus, you rose and left our sin in the ground, and now you are high and lifted up, you are seated on the throne, and you invite us to eat at your table. Lord, on the night you were betrayed, you established a meal for generations. Eat of it until the Lord comes, you see. That anyone who was hungry or thirsty could come to your table. So Lord, this morning, we come boldly humbly we come willingly we thank you for the bread and for the wine symbolic of the body broken for us and your blood poured out for our freedom would we meet with you while we eat with you this morning Jesus and may we always know that there is a seat for us at your table Just going to maintain it.
an attitude of reflection here. If you'd like to come in your own time, there's no order, anything like that. You're all adults. Help yourself or one of the elders will serve you. And be blessed this morning.
sing with me how great is our God no see
so worthy. You are risen, you are alive, and we are seated with you in heavenly places. We look forward to the day where you return for your bride, return for your church. And even then it says, and we will sit down at the banquet table with every tribe and every nation. And we will eat with you and you will eat for us, will eat with us forevermore. But Lord, until that day, your spirit is within us. Your table is set before us. May we walk sons and daughters of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Thank you for your favour. Thank you for your provision. Thank you for your love poured out. In the strong name of Jesus we pray. And God's people said Amen. Amen. He is risen. So good. Alright. That concludes our service here this morning officially. Tea and coffee is served in the other building. If you would like prayer for anything, come. Uh, Either myself or one of our team would love to pray with you. Uh, But enjoy Resurrection Sunday. Don't go out downcast, but go out full of the life of Jesus that He has paid for for you. And have a wonderful afternoon, a wonderful rest of your week. And we'll see you here next Sunday. God bless.